Amen and amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Amos and chapter 5. The Word of God open. Listen carefully. Amos 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Amen. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you this evening for your word. Your word is true and powerful and sharp and living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts of men. There is surely no creature hidden from your sight. All things are naked and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And this evening, Father, we pray that your word will come and that your word will perform its work in our hearts, that you would save the lost and restore the backslider and build up your people, O God, in faith and hope and love and in holy confidence. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening we come to what you might say is the photographic negative of this morning's sermon. This morning's sermon, God was wrapped up in love coming to His children, assuring us that nothing can separate us from His love, nothing can threaten our relationship. This evening, we see Him come to His Old Testament people dressed in the robes of judgment, pronouncing doom upon His people. And you might say, is there not a contradiction there? No, it's, it's no different than the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, there's none more tender with the children, and yet none more severe and fierce, ferocious and terrifying to the white witch and her ilk. It doesn't matter where Aslan meets the white witch, whether he meets her in the field of battle or if he meets her in church pretending to be pious, he will not be her friend, and his presence will reveal her for who she really is. And both aspects of Aslan's character are true. And we brush up against them all the time in Scripture. We even brushed up against them this morning in our text. Those who live by the Spirit will put to death the deeds of the flesh. But if you live, by the, if you live, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There are two characters, those who have the Spirit, those who don't, and two testimonies, two destinies, life and peace and death, right? It's a, it's a stark contrast. It's important to realize that and to recognize that when you come to Scripture. Otherwise, you can be very confused. You remember Amos is writing to the northern kingdom. These are people who, while they're very religious and enjoying a period of remarkable prosperity in the 8th century BC, um, they've actually drifted far from God. And if you remember last week, um, Amos came, and he exposed the death of the nation's soul. Israel as a nation, their soul had died. And God comes to expose their religiosity. They're coming to these three shrines, you remember, Bethel and Bathsheba and Gilgal. Bethel was the place where Jacob went to meet God. And yet Israel are going to Bethel to hide from God and to ignore God. Bathsheba was the place, literally the well of the, Beersheba was the well of the sworn covenant. And Israel are going to Beersheba, but they're breaking the covenant. And Gilgal was the place where Israel ruled away. Um, Galal in Hebrew means to rule away. They were ruling away the reproach of Egypt. They were returning to God. They were circumcising their sons that they hadn't done for 40 years. And they were returning to God. And Israel are going to Gilgal to forsake God and to turn from Him. Gilgal was the place where Israel ruled away the reproach of idolatry. And now it's become a place where Israel go to engage in 
idolatry. In other words, they have the, the, the places they go for worship have the right names, orthodox names. They've just lost their meaning. In fact, they've become the opposite of meaning, right? It reminds me of, I was watching this week, the PCUSA, not the PCA, but the PCUSA, the formerly northern church that completely has forsaken the gospel. The vast majority of the ministers don't believe in an inspired Bible, don't believe in a divine Savior. They believe His resurrection was just a, he, Christ rose again in the minds of His people kind of thing. There's no miracles in that um, in that church, their gospel is the gospel of liberalism, um, which um, Reinhold Niebuhr described once as a God without wrath, bringing people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. And the thing about theological liberalism is they use all the right words. They just don't mean the right things, right? And so I was hearing the PCUSA um, synod or assembly, general assembly, lamenting the overturn of Roe versus Wade, that it was a tragedy for women's health care. That's a perfect example. Health care becomes a, a term to describe murdering children, right? And that's what happens when you start redefining the Bible in any place, you'll start redefining the Bible in every place, right? And that's what's happened in the northern tribe of Israel. They're redefining the words of religion. They use the words of orthodoxy, but without the life of orthopraxy. They're not living the right way. There's a complete disconnect between the religion they practice and the God they worship. Remember from last time, um, God condemns them. He says, you turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Remember how Amos does a play on those words. He says, God can turn things as well. God can turn light to darkness and darkness to light. And God can cast things down too. You cast justice down to the earth. Down to the earth. God casts the oceans of the earth, the oceans of the world, down to the earth. There's a total disconnect between what they're doing and who God is. And there's a total refusal, you remember as well, to hear the truth. We're told in verse 7 and verse 8 of chapter 5, um, sorry, verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. They despise truth and the truth teller. Indeed, it's become such an age that it's no longer safe to speak the truth in the land. Verse 13 of chapter 5, Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. It's an Old Testament echo of Christ's words, don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they turn and trample you under feet, foot, right? Sorry, my brain is diseased. And when your religion is the problem, right, more religion cannot be the answer. Alec Mateer said, and I don't think I quoted this last week, this hymn, this lament, is bracketed about with references to a people who resist change. They come to Bethel, and they go from Bethel, totally unaltered. The failure, therefore, lay not in the Bethel promises, nor in the God of Bethel, but in the willfulness which would not be transformed from lawlessness and transgression. Amos's exposure of a religion which leaves life untouched could not have been more brilliantly accomplished. They go, they sing, they come away, and nothing, simply nothing, has changed. Justice is still turned sour, and righteousness is still overthrown. A new life is primary evidence for having had credible dealings with God. Where there is no change, then we are saying that God makes no difference. The transformer has not transformed. Clearly, something's wrong, and the problem is not in God. The problem is in the hearts of those who claim to be His people. And as a result, God comes on the warpath like Aslan to the last battle. God comes to Israel in the Old Testament, and he's, He pronounces 
three woes upon the people. And I hope to get through the three woes, but we might not. We shall see. Um, the three woes. The first is, woe to those who look forward to the rapture. Woe to those you who desire the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord um, ultimately points forward to the final day of judgment, right? But think in your mind's eye of a series of paper targets. And then at the end, there's a final solid target. And a bullet or an arrow, depending on your choice of weapon, is fired through each paper target. It goes through one, two, three, four, five targets, and then finally slams into the the final target. Well, the day of the Lord um, is a bit like that. It's, it's, It's a final day of judgment, but there are echoes of it throughout history. Whenever Assyria came down and wiped Israel off the face of the map in 722 B.C., that was, in a sense, a, a, a premonition of the day of the Lord, like a, a pre-quake, what do you call it? I forget. The pre-quake before the big quake, right? And then later on when Babylon came and wiped it, Judah off the face of the map and raised the temple to the ground, that was also a premonition of the day of the Lord. And so it goes. Every great moment of historic judgment, Mount Krakatoa exploding, um, the 9-11, the towers falling, all of these are prefigurements of a final great day of slaughter, a great day of reckoning when God will come in and speak against sin once and for all. And so God pronounces woe to those who look forward to the rapture in verse 18. You'll see in chapter 6, verse 1, He pronounces woe to those who feel safe in sin, woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, right? And these people are partying. We'll see that later on, verse 2, 3, and 4, chapter 6. But there's no repentance. They're not grieved by sin. They, they, They put off uh, they, they, they put far away in their mind the day of disaster, and they bring near the seat of violence, Amos says in 6 verse 3. They, they put off the thought of, of judgment so that they might enjoy the presence of violence and oppression and sin. And then Amos also pronounces woe to those who feel no burden for the church. Um, chapter 6 verse 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs, verse 6, who drink wine in bowls. Wine glasses aren't enough. They've got this big bowl to drink their wine in. It's always wine o'clock in Israel. But the problem is, in verse 6, they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. There's no burden for the church and its languishing state far from God, lost in sin. And God comes to pronounce judgment. Woe to those who look forward to the rapture, those who feel safe in sin, and those who feel no burden for the church and the spiritual condition of Israel. Let's move on this evening and we'll look through these three, um, these three woes. Woe to those, first of all then, who look forward to the rapture. Woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. Why would anyone desire the day of the Lord? Well, two reasons. One, the day marks the end of all their sorrows and the end of all their enemies. What's there not to like, okay? And um, that was the Pharisees, you remember. They couldn't wait for Messiah to come. Why? Well, because when Messiah came, they thought, he's going to wipe out all the Romans. Woohoo! And he's going to wipe out all the dirty people who defile the land, people like the lepers, the prostitutes, and the tax collectors. The problem with Israel are people like that, right? The problem, of course, was the Pharisees didn't reckon with the fact that it was their kind of people, the Pharisees, who were defiling the land. And when Messiah came, first of all in mercy and later in judgment, he actually came with a word that was profoundly hostile to them. And they couldn't figure it out, so they thought, we better kill this guy because he's annoying us with his sermons. For such people, Amos says, the day of the Lord will not be a day of light, it'll be a day of darkness. It is darkness and not light, verse 19, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, 
and a serpent bit him. It's a graphic imagery. There's a guy out hunting, and he meets a lion. It's pretty bad, right? So he runs. Ah, lion. And then he meets a bear. It's getting worse. He runs into his house. The bear and the lion are chasing him. Ah, breathless. Gets into the house, slams the door, leans against the wall, thinks, I'm safe. And there's a serpent on the wall, bites his hand. It's the, it's the famous trope in the serial killer mo- mo- movie, the girl goes out to hear what, what went bump in the, in, the, in, the, in the barn, and, which you never do, of course. But anyway, she goes out by herself at night to find out what's in the barn, and then there's a serial killer there. She runs back to the house, closes the door, and thinks, safe. And of course, the serial killer's now in the house with her behind the locked door. That's the picture here, except Israel aren't trying to escape from lions and bears and, and serpents. They're trying to escape from God, and there is no escape from God. And the day of the Lord then becomes a day of darkness and not light, a day when every hope dies and every dream becomes a nightmare. Now, you can imagine the people saying, but hold on a second, Lord, we've got like this big Bible. Hold on a second. We've got a Bible that's like this size, right? And I carry a Westminster Confession of Faith that's even bigger. And I've got a library full of the good books, and I sing my ARP Psalter, and I have all these things that, that are, you know, all the accoutrements of orthodoxy. It's, you can't be angry at us. And God's response is, um, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. What about our songs? They're just a noise in my ears. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Remember we said last week that the one offering that wasn't mentioned was which offering? The sin offering. We're offering all the offerings. We're feasting all the feastings. We're solemnizing all the solemn assemblies. But there's no conviction of sin. There's no need for a blood sacrifice. These are people... These are not people who are striving to live for Christ by first striving to trust Christ. And they come each week, and they're burdened, and many of you are burdened, and you'll say to yourself, I'm just such a wretched sinner. I have no hope but Christ. As the, the, the insignia, whenever somebody asked Robert E. Lee, what do you want to put on your tomb? He said, I am nothing but a poor sinner trusting Jesus. Right? Beautiful quote. This is not these people. These people have no conviction of sin. They just think their organs and their music and their, their orthodox words, that's all that matters. They've given God everything except the one thing that matters, which is their hearts. And God says, let justice, verse 24, rule down like waters and righteousness like a never-flowing stream. Don't get me wrong, right worship matters, but so does righteousness. If you have the one without the other, it's meaningless. And in fact, there's one thing even more important than right worship and right righteousness. It's a right heart. And you can't have right worship or righteousness without a right heart. And that only comes by the regenerating power of God, invading our dead soul and bringing life where there was only death and light was the, where there was only darkness. Verse 25, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? One commentator says, we might paragraph, sorry, paraphrase this verse, were sacrifices and offerings all that you brought me during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you brought me yourselves. You brought me your hearts. Without that covenant relationship, the whole sacrificial system was simply reduced to playing at meetings. You shall take up Sukkoth your king and Kirion your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. What's he saying here? Sukkoth um, and Kirion. They are the, one of the senior gods of the Assyrian pantheon. Uh, Sikath was 
Um, the God... Um, let me see, I'm not an expert on uh, help. Oh, yes. Sikith was the Assyrian god of war. And he was identified with the planet Saturn. Right? And you see here the madness of it and the stupidity and the blasphemy. They've replaced the Lord of battles, the Lord of hosts, with the Assyrian god of war. They've, they've replaced the god who made the stars with a star, Saturn. They've replaced the God who made them with a God of their own making. The madness of idolatry and the stupidity and the blasphemy. Alec Matir says, The gods of Assyria occupied the hearts of Israel long before the armies of Assyria occupied its streets and its towns. You shall take up, Sikketh, your king. You'll take up your Assyrian God. Verse 27, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus to Assyria. It's a terrible judgment. You will take up your God. You'll carry him when he should be the one carrying you. And if you have the gods of Assyria, don't expect to live in the land of Yahweh. You'll be exiled to the land of Assyria, and you'll see that the gods of Assyria and the land of Assyria go together like water and wet. Again, Matir says, There it all was, and the ritual of the shrines, divorced from the Word of God, the Word of God heard, loved, and obeyed, was no safeguard. All the religion was no safeguard. Is anything so perilous or so fickle as religious experience isolated from the intelligible message of God addressed to mind, heart, and will. There was great ostentation, pomp, and circumstance at these shrines. I'm sure Israel had a great time. They loved going there. The problem was God didn't love going there. I'm reminded of Calvin when he says, all men have a vague general veneration for God, but very few really reverence Him. And wherever there is great ostentation in ceremonies, sincerity of heart is rare indeed. That doesn't mean we should be careless in church. It doesn't mean we should be lackadaisical and, and unconcerned. But it does mean our focus should not be on the external. It's the Pharisee who cleansed the outside of the cup while the inside was full of dead men's bones, right? And the parallels are legion. You know, there's the pastors in the land who preach about the rapture and of all the charts, but they're having sex with their secretary. And the two kind of don't go together, do they? And so, it's a searching moment for us. Are you longing for Christ to come? If you are, you want to make sure that you're in Christ, trusting Him, loving, be, being loved by Him, loving His ways, His truth, His Word, living for Him by His grace, repenting from your sins. Every day brings fresh sins, but those fresh sins give the Christian a fresh reason to run to their all-sufficient Savior and lose themselves in Him. Israel knew none of that. And because of that, the day of the Lord would be a day of darkness, not light. How does that sit with you? Because God hasn't changed. Woe to those who long for the rapture. And then next, he goes on. Woe to those who feel safe in sin. Um, chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. These are the big men in the boardroom and the big men in church. But being big in the church and being big in the boardroom doesn't necessarily mean you're big before God. Verse 2, pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, 
and go down to Gath of the Philistines, are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? There's a play on words here. God is, is basically saying, you're living just like the pagans. Therefore, expect to die like the pagans. But there's a play in words here. If you go back to Deuteronomy 7, which is such an important verse. Turn there a second with me quickly. Keep your finger in Amos, but go back to Deuteronomy 7. Remember, remember God said, go down to the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory greater than your territory, right? Remember what God said? It was verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loved Israel, not because they were more or better. He loved them because he loved them. That was always the secret of Israel's specialness. But Israel lost the sense of that. They thought they were special because they were special. Judah would be, would be infected with the same mindset in Jeremiah 7. Whenever Jeremiah is warning them of judgment, they said, God's not going to judge us. We've got the temple, the temple of the Lord. The problem was they didn't have the God of the temple anymore with them. He had departed from them because they had departed from him. And so, just because God loved you because you were no better and no bigger than the world and the surrounding nations doesn't mean you have the excuse to live like them, Amos is saying. It's basically James 4. Remember when James said, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And whoever desires to be a friend of the world, makes himself the enemy of God. That's what Amos is saying here. Verse 3, or you put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. What he's saying is they put away the day, they put the thought of God's judgment far away from their mind. But they bring violence right into their hearts. It's like a man thinking he can be abusive towards his wife and forgets that one day he will stand before Christ and give an account for how he's loved his wife. Or about like a wife who lives in the home um, and she knows she's got her husband by the short and curlies. It's Baal Peor, which literally means the Lord of the opening, right? Baal was the god of sex, and don't need to tell you what opening he's referring to. Baal Peor, the Lord of the opening. And so many women think, because they're the Lord of the opening, and, they, and their husband's got to come to them if he wants any kind of love and satisfaction in his marriage, and they can use that as a bargaining chip to hold him and to control him. He might be the head, but I am the neck, she says. And so she abuses him, she belittles him, she mocks him, she berates him. And she's no better than the abusive husband. And both of them forget. They bring, in a sense, the violence of words, murderous words into their home. Or a parent murdering their children with harsh, bitter, wicked words. We've all done that. But we only do that whenever we forget that we'll give an accounting in the day of judgment for every careless word we speak. And Israel, as a pattern of life, put thoughts of judgment far away, and they brought sin right up close. And that's a problem. There's no safety in it. Woe to those who feel safe in sin. Bob File, in his wonderful little book, Teaching Amos, Unlocking the Prophecy of Amos for Bible Teachers, for which I am grateful, he said, the root cause of this complacent attitude is the same, a people who had fallen out of a right relationship with the Lord. The God worshipped at Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba was not the sovereign Lord of creation and history, but a godlet whose purpose was seen to gratify the people's whims encouraging them in their lives of apathy, luxury, 
and self-indulgence. It's a God who exists to satisfy, and we see that, you know, all over the place. But we see that in churches where the worship exists to satisfy the needs of the people. Now, we have our problems too, so I, I mean, we're the ones with the big Bibles and the big confessions of faith, but there are churches where the whole worship service is designed to satisfy the desires of the people. And people come and think, oh, this is wonderful. I feel so good here. It's great. And they leave completely unchanged, satisfied, but not sanctified. We're no better if we come with our doctrine of sanctification and leave without sanctification, right? Um, But it's that sense that God exists to satisfy me, to give me a good life and make me happy forever. That's a mistake. So, woe to those who feel safe in sin. And then, thirdly, woe to those who feel no burden for the church, Amos 6, 4 and following. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. I wonder, is he kind of referring, remember whenever Nathan went to to David and condemned him for having sex with um, Bathsheba, and he likened Bathsheba to a lamb and Uriah to a poor farmer who had one lamb, who he loved with all his heart. And David's this rich, fat cat with lots of lambs. And rather than sacrifice one of his own lambs, he goes and takes Uriah's ewe lamb and sacrifices it and robs the man of the one thing he had and the one thing he loved, that kind of brutal, heartless oppression that David was capable of. And if David can be like that, then I can be like that. And if I can be like that, I dare say, maybe you all can be as well. These are people who know how to party with wine in their palaces, but they don't know how to weep over the church in her sin. Woe to those who, verse 5, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls, a glass isn't big enough, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So, Amos here is not condemning people who have means. We're all in this room wealthier than the 96.7% of the rest of the world. Go in, there's a website, I think it's called howmuchdoiearn.com. Put in your salary. Unless you earn less than $16,000 a year, you earn more than 95% of the world, right? Um, that's just a fact. And it's pretty humbling. He's not condemning wealth. He's condemning a wealth that hardened your soul, that like um, Laodicea, where the church had everything. They were rich and thought they were so wealthy but they actually had nothing and didn't know they were blind and naked and poor and wretched. And Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, right? It reminds me of the rich fool in Luke's gospel. You remember, um, he said that he told the parable of the, of the, the rich man whose, whose land was plentiful. And he began thinking to himself, what shall I do? I've got more stuff than I can store, he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So here's the man, and he's believing a number of deadly lies, that life's about getting more. And life's about securing what you have for tomorrow, building the barns to store it all in. And then Life's about enjoying the simple pleasures. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Those are the three lies he's believing. But there's a fourth lie, the most deadly one of all, that life is about to go on for a very long time. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Um, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Life's about to go on for a very long time. He doesn't realize that that very night God will say, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And then will, then will, then whose will those things be that you've stored up for yourself? So is he, Jesus says, who is rich toward himself and not rich toward God. The problem isn't the fullness of his bank balance. 
The problem was the emptiness of his soul. That's the problem. So money isn't a problem, except it can deceive you and me that because our bank balance is full, therefore our life is full. And we know better, but still, stupid is what stupid does, right? Um, You can have a full bank account and an empty soul. They are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. It's a, an awesome picture. The first shall be last, and the last first. And God, through Amos, says, this is a problem. These, this distance from God, this hardness of heart is a problem because Judgment Day is coming. It's certain. The Lord has sworn by Himself. He's saying that to assure you. Remember in Hebrews 6, God swears His promises of mercy, so you will know He means business. He's not going to break His promise, right? He, he means it. He will forgive your sins. He's, he's bound Himself literally by seven. When you swear in Hebrew, you bind yourself by seven. So God isn't saying, I will never forsake you. He's saying, I will never, 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 never forsake you. Well, God is saying the same thing here, but not in comfort, but in judgment. The Lord has sworn by Himself, declares the Lord of hosts. I abhor the the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, that's a rich, big house, They shall all die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him, Who's in the innermost part of the house? Is there anyone still with you? He shall say no. He shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. There's no, even in judgment, there's no reverence. There's no mention of God, and there's no survivors left in the house. It's like that sign sometimes you see outside people's houses. Burglars will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. That's the picture here in, um, of God coming down and exposing them and disposing them. He will not deliver them from judgment. He's coming to deliver them to judgment. And the tragedy, um, God continues, verse 11, for behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Of course not. Does one plow there with oxen on rocks? Of course not. But you have turned, you've done the unthinkable, you've done the unnatural, you've turned justice into poison. As stupid as a horse galloping on rocks, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? That's an interesting. What's he saying? Well, Lodabar literally means nothing. You rejoice in nothing. And you say, Have we not by our own strength captured the double horn, which means the double strength for ourselves? Have we not by our own strength captured the double horn for ourselves? Here's Israel boasting in their military accomplishments. We, have, we by our own strength, have captured the double strength. And God is saying, That's just a boast in Lodabar in nothing. Your boasting is empty because you're boasting in nothing. For behold, God says, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It's Assyria. And they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath, that's in the north, to the brook of Arabah, that's in the south. From the very top of the land to its very bottom, they shall be oppressed. Again, Bob File says, For all their boasting, complacency, and fancied strength, the people of God can do nothing to save themselves. For Yahweh of hosts has turned against them. Now, you might say to yourself, is that not a contradiction? 
I mean, how, this morning is a God of love, this evening is a God of wrath. It, it doesn't make any sense. Um, no, it makes perfect sense. Remember, there only are two different characters in Romans 8, those who have the Spirit and those who don't, those who set their mind in the things of the flesh and those who set their mind in the things of the Spirit. The one leads to death, the other to life and peace. At the end of Romans 8, you remember Paul has this glorious segment where he says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. And you can imagine the Jews who are present in Rome, because there was a large Jewish contingent lived there, and they're saying, but, but Shlomo, he was abandoned by God. My aunt Shlomo and, and my uncle Shlomo and Aunt Ruth, they, were, they don't know Christ. They, they've been, has God forgotten His covenant? And then Paul gives you Romans 9, 10, and 11, in which we see Paul talking about how God's sovereignty toward Israel, that He loved Jacob, but He hated Esau. The exercise of mercy is optional with God. And then in Romans 10, God talks about how Israel forsook. They were too proud to come to God as a simple sinner. And they, rather than embracing the righteousness that comes through faith, they said, no, no, we, we want to have something to offer God. I want to do it myself, like this morning's sermon, remember? I do it myself, little child saying, no, no, I do it myself. And they wanted to have something to offer God, to feel better about themselves, that they wouldn't be totally destitute beggars of grace. They wanted to have some credit themselves. And so, in trying to earn their own righteousness, they fell away from the only way to become righteous, which is through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you remember in the Bible, there only really are two different types of people. Uh, you remember that famous passage? It's just after, remember, in, in, we read in Deuteronomy 7 earlier on, that the Lord did not set His love on you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, because you were the fewest of all peoples, the least, the last, and the lost, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to you, to your fathers. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. And then, in the next verse, I think it's verse 10, Moses says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments, but destroys those who hate Him. He will not delay long with Him who hates Him, but will repay Him to His face. In the Bible, Old and New Testaments, there only are two different classes of people those who love God and who hate sin, and those who hate God and who love sin. Those are the only two classes. And depending on which class you, 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 you fit determines God's posture towards you. Of course, those who love God, we only love Him because He first loved us. We, we didn't come to God and say, look how much I love you, God, and then God said, okay, I love you. No, we're all together lumped as mankind, running away from God in sin, and God comes down and says, no, I'm going to love you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And He rescues us. He pulls it, and he, he, he pours His Spirit into our hearts and turns us away from sin toward Christ, or toward Christ and away from sin. And He starts refashioning in our hearts, working in us to will and to do for His good pleasure, creating new desires and the strength to carry those desires out into action. He works in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. And in the strength of that working, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But there are others in this world, and they may be very religious or not, but ultimately the allegiance of their heart is turned away from Christ and turned towards sin. And the reason they're inclined that way is because they hate Him. They hate God and they love sin. There only are the two categories of sinner, those who love God and hate sin, and those who hate God and who love sin. Now, whatever category you feel or fear you belong to this evening, I want to tell you 
that more religion is not the answer. More religion is never the answer, even the right religion. Becoming a better associate Reformed Presbyterian is not the answer. Going to a non-denom church where there's cool worship and a cool website and there's a worship band and smoke and so forth and so on, that's not the answer either. Doing doubling down in religion, trying harder to be better is not the answer. Christ is always the only answer for sinners lost and undone. It's the hymn writer who said, Lord, tis not that I did choose you, that I know could never be, for this heart would still refuse you had your grace not chosen me. You removed the sin that stained me, cleansing me to be your own. For this purpose you ordained me, that I live for you alone. It was grace in Christ that called me, taught my darkened heart and mind, else the world had yet enthralled me to your heavenly glories blind. Now I worship none above you, for your grace alone I thirst, knowing well that if I love you, O oh, Father, you love me first. Praise the God of all creation. Praise the Father's boundless love. Praise the Lamb, our expiation, priest and king enthroned above. Praise the Spirit of salvation, Him by whom our spirits live, undivided adoration to the great Jehovah give. And, and, and what, how these how these two sermons are designed to work. And I'm reminded of Ralph Davis, my Hebrew professor, one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard. And he always said, you know, never let your sermons die the death of a thousand qualifications. If you're preaching, you know, Romans 5 and 6, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, don't you dare say at the end of the sermon, remember Lot's wife, right? Because that's not what you're preaching. You can't out-sin God's grace. If you're in Christ, you cannot out-sin the grace of God. You're as safe in Christ as a lost sinner is lost without Christ. You cannot be damned any more than God can redam Christ. Because if you're in Christ, you've already been damned with Christ. When He died, you died. And God can't kill you anymore without being unjust. Christ has received all the damnation you deserve. Christ has paid all the debt you owe. And you're safe. Safe, right? In Christ. If you're outside of Christ, you're lost, and you've got to be saved. And God is coming at you as a roaring lion. So you've got a roaring lion chasing you in this direction, and you've got a warm, gentle Aslan beckoning you in this direction. And of course, the purpose of the two sermons, so if, in, and, and to finish my argument, Davis would say, if you're preaching, remember Lot's wife, right? Don't you dare end the sermon by saying, but we're sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You can turn back to Sodom and it's safe. No, it's no more safe for you to look back to Sodom than it was for Lot's wife to look back to Sodom. Remember Lot's wife. And it sounds like a contradiction. He says, no, no, preach both texts and let the Holy Spirit deal with the apparent contradictions over the course of your ministry because both things are true. God is a tender, warm, loving Aslan who allows little children to nestle into his mane and feel the warm breath of his fatherly um, voice speaking into their ears. You are my child. You're safe. And God is also a ferocious lion chasing those who hate him to despise him. And at, and, and at one time or another as Christians, we need both messages. There are times my heart grows cold and I start going, oh, looks pretty good over here. This sin looks pretty, pretty sweet. And it feels pretty good too. And you sort of wander in this direction. And then the sermon comes with Aslan roaring and you think, oh, wrong. And you run back again toward tender Aslan. And, and that's how it's supposed to work. And so it doesn't always happen, but today you get both barrels, the barrel of mercy and the barrel of wrath. And the one is designed to drive you toward the other. Right? Because both things are true. You could never make this stuff up. The glory of God. He is good. But He's not safe. And so you shouldn't allow His goodness to make you play footless and fancy free with him. But he's safe in it. In, sorry, he's good in that you can run to him. And he'll never abandon you. He'll never forsake you. And he'll never cast you out. And so we need both truths. On each side, as it were, ahead of us, the goodness of God. 
and behind us the wrath of God, but it's always the goodness of God. And the problem with some Christians, going back to this morning's sermon, the wrath of God is a bit like the symbols in, uh, in an orchestra, right? You don't play them all the time. Like, if the guy with the symbols is going, oh, I love this, this is really good, and he's going, hmm, it would destroy the orchestra, orchestral music, right? The only, if you're the conductor, you say, stupid, no, no, you only play them when I tell you to play them, okay? Stop that silliness. We're in the pastoral movement here, the lovely, you know, the, the sixth symphony. That's soft, right? Right? And the problem is, too many preachers and too many Christians, they just want the symbols all the time. And it's deafening, it's horrible, right? So I set before you, as Paul says, the goodness and the severity of the Lord. Never trust a preacher who only gives you one of the two, because they're both true. And you and I need to hear both of them to keep us on the narrow road that leads to life, where there are no wild beasts, but only the fatherly hand of God the Father and the merciful hand of God the Son who has made a full end of all of our sins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, that as we walk on the narrow road that leads to life, the only word you have for us is grace, mercy, and peace. There's nothing to be feared in the arms of Jesus. And yet there are times in our madness when we turn away from Jesus and turn toward our sin. And you use the threatenings of the law to frighten, in the appropriate sense, your children back again into the arms of Jesus. And I pray this evening as your word goes forth, O Lord, that you will protect the tender soul from being crushed by the symbols of wrath. And protect the hardened soul from being lulled to sleep with the sound of mercy. But let the Holy Spirit do His work in all of our hearts leading us away from sin and toward Jesus with the goodness and the severity of our Heavenly Father, whom we wouldn't change, less would not satisfy, and more of you can only be desired. In Christ's name, amen.